everybody, and welcome to Crime and Spirits Podcast, your one-stop shop for spooky stories, handcrafted cocktails, and all things true crime. I'm your host, Bree. And I am your other host, Seuss. I'm also the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits. Because not only do we bring you a new case or topic of interest every week, but we also teach you a little something about mixology along the way. I mix up a drink that ties in in some way with our theme for the week and then walk you through how to make one for yourself so you can sip right along with us. We've been friends for years and one of our favorite things to do is mix up something delicious and throw on a true crime documentary, which is basically what this podcast has become. It is, however, better research than that. We promise. Yes. Cross our hearts. <laughs> we also have a script written out that we mostly follow. Mostly. Still, you can expect some tangents here and there. We also managed to find a way to mention criminal minds at least once, if not multiple times, per episode. We gotta give Dr. Spencer Reed all the love. Yes. And you also can't forget the cursing, because we definitely curse on this show. We try to keep things a little bit more conversational. Think less like Dateline and more like Girls' Night. Just replace the catty gossip with actual facts. And maybe just a little catty gossip. So come, hang out with us, learn a little something with us every Sunday, and make sure to join us on Instagram or Facebook at Crime and Spirits Pod. That is the word and. We'd love to chat with you about, I mean, whatever, really, but mostly true crime. So buckle up, Buttercup. Sip tight. And let's get on with the show. Well, hello, my darlings, and welcome. This is Crime and Spirits. We are your hosts. My name's Bree. And I'm Seuss. And this week, we are covering the infamous escape from Alcatraz Island, and also some of the other crazy shit that happened there. Because there's a lot. It was a lot more than I initially thought. <laughs> yeah, me too. Once we, like, dug into things, uh, some things, like, came to the surface, but... I was like, hmm, interesting. I did not know half of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, for real. And it's been quite a week, so I'm excited to kind of get into something that uh, is interesting to talk about like it's a very interesting topic Mm -hmm. you chose good this time around more like (laughs) and honestly the mythical folklorish qualities of Alcatraz sort of drive this story because there's a lot of what if for right you know what I mean so it's very interesting to talk about and we're not ready to let go of Halloween yet (laughs) that too so (laughs) So. still spooky (laughs) and creepy stuff yes so we will be talking during our travels today about the battle of Alcatraz in addition to the actual escape itself And all of it was a bit violent. You guys know that we try not to go into unnecessary detail, but we just wanted to put all this out there just ahead of time, just so you know what you're getting yourself into. Exactly. It's it's not your jam. Don't feel pressured. No, no pressure. This is a safe space. Yes. And of course, by creating a safe space, we mean no disrespect to the victims and their families by doing this podcast. We're just here to learn, to have some good discussions, and to enjoy a delicious cocktail together. So... If you like what you're about to hear, make sure to follow the podcast on your favorite social media platform. We're going to make sure that everything is available to you. And if you're interested in us as humans, stick around at the end and we'll give you those handles as well. Because we are pretty cool. We're pretty awesome, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Just a little bit. And so speaking of cocktails, I've had a really long fucking week, so I'm super ready yes. for what you're about to give me. So... <laughs> Okay, so this case obviously deals with one of the most daring jailbreaks in history. The amount of detail that these guys put into what they were doing is just mind-boggling to me. Like, if they would have used their brains for good and not evil, right? just imagine where they could have been. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure, for sure. So, uh, to deal with all this, we're definitely going to need a cocktail. So, I had jailbreak on the brain, like, so hard. <laughs> so, I googled 
jailbreak cocktails. Mm. There is a jailbreak cocktail. Oh. It sounds kind of caca, in my opinion. <laughs> it was like amaretto, oh. Guinness, oh. Coca-Cola, what? and like three other things. And oh. I was just like, I don't really... You know, I mean, I guess. There's some stuff like the the filthy sodas that we tried. Right. Those came out delicious. Mm-hmm. This one, I'm sure, would also be delicious. But mm. I'm not quite prepared to go down that road yet. I don't know. You, you lost me at Guinness, yeah, I think. Yeah. So, instead of that, I was like, <laughs> forget about this. We're going rum punchy. Yes. And I'm going to call it the jailbreak on the bay. Mmm. Clever, clever. Because it's about, the story's about a jailbreak at the end of the day. It did happen on a San Francisco, on the San Francisco Bay and yeah. not like a bay in Jamaica. But still, nonetheless, whatever. We're going rum punchy. Um, So you will need a shaker and your glassware for this. We're using a plain old shaker glass full of ice for our cocktail glass. First things first, take two ounces of your pineapple rum, which we are using Bacardi brand. If pineapple is not your jam, do not feel pressured to be stuck with the constraints Mm -hmm. of pineapple rum. There are like 47 different flavors of rum. If you want a different one, by all means, have at it. Orange juice is a pretty versatile mixer absolutely as well and this cocktail is going to be sweet no matter which rum you use if you prefer yeah. mango or banana or lemon oh, even mango whatever blows your hair back interesting so two ounces of the rum into your shaker filled with ice next we're taking one ounce of banana liqueur and adding it to the shaker we are using Jaquin's brand, which coincidentally is a PA product. I had no idea. So I went to the liquor store, and it was, like, made in Pennsylvania. And I was like, that can't be right, because they make the square bottles with the long necks that you see in every bar. They yeah. make Slogan. They make Cream de Cacao. They yeah. make Creme de Menthe. They make all of these random things. They're based out of Philadelphia. They've been there since 1884. Oh. Interesting. Right. So I was like, okay, I guess PA Pride is it. So I picked up their banana liqueur. Next, take three ounces of orange juice and add it to your shaker. Again, if you want to go crazy and get some nutty flavor of OJ, have at it. Yeah. Again, there's 400 flavors of orange juice out there. For our Swamp Monster, we used banana orange juice, I think. Oh, that was so good. But I couldn't find it. So here we are with orange juice. Orange juice is also good. Still is delicious. So shake all that up. Strain it into your glass with fresh ice. This is my favorite part. Every time I make a drink that involves this step, I'm like, look how pretty it is. (laughs) Take your grenadine, which again is the Jaquins brand. I know you can get non-alcoholic stuff, but the grenadine is literally five proof, so feel free. It's not going to blow your socks off with alcohol or anything. That's just not how we roll here. Right. <laughs> if you have a pour spout, I would recommend it for this. I have cheap plastic ones. I know you can get them all over the place. Yeah. If you don't have a pour spout, you can use the back of a spoon, set it on the edge of the glass, and just pour the grenadine very slowly over the spoon you have a pour spout just take your bottle with your pour spout and go slowly please (laughs) on the side of the glass the grenadine will just sort of sink to the bottom and form its own layer at the bottom it sort of looks like a nice little sunset it does yeah that's what I was gonna say and just to be tongue-in-cheek I really went out of my way to find some gummy sharks and some Swedish fish really did to put in this drink because you know sharks in the bay beware Um, And before you drink your drink, make sure you just give it a little swizzle and stir up the grenadine so you're not just drinking the grenadine flavoring at the bottom because basically just 
cherry-ish flavored. To me, it just tastes sweet, if we're being perfectly honest. Like, but Oh, the grenadine? Yeah, but once you stir it up, it sort of makes it like a pretty orangish color, like more orangey. Oh, I see. see? Okay. Like it sort of dissipates the grenadine. Looks like really. a creamsicle, if mm -hmm. you will, almost. But it's so much sweeter and more delicious. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's like a Bahama Mama, but not. I honestly wasn't sure. Because um, she sent me the list, like the ingredients for us to like post on social media. So I at least know what's going into the drink, even if I don't have no idea how it's being built or anything else. <laughs> and I was like, banana and pineapple, huh? This mm -hmm. is good. It's delicious. Yeah. This is you're so good at this. And it's just so, it's such a pretty drink. Like yeah. I said, with the float of the grenadine, because it's called floating, mm. it sinks right to the bottom and just makes it look so pretty. It's good. Yeah. Another one knocked out of the park. For our, our jailbreak on the bay. Honestly. <laughs> so we're going to start things out with a little history lesson on the island itself. Because there's a lot of history. Yes, <laughs> but I kind of condensed it to like the most important kind of like notes, if you will. So it was first charted in 1775 by a Spanish naval officer. He was the first European to ever document the islands of the San Francisco Bay Area. And he was likely the one to name it as well. The archaic Spanish word for a pelican is Alcatraz. And this is presumably where the name came from. And I believe I read it's because there were a butt ton of pelicans, but... <laughs> that tracks. You know what I mean? I don't know. I've been to San Francisco, and I know there are pelicans there. I just... Mm, that would make sense, considering yeah. It is the a layout. sea. Yeah, you know, yeah. islands and sea and whatnot. <laughs> Interesting. It all adds up. So at the time, the island was actually under Spanish rule, but became privately owned in 1846. That same year, however, the military governor of California, John C. Fremont, bought the island. It was purchased for five grand and, quote unquote, in the name of the government. Like so many things back in the day. <laughs> so I think it was because, okay, I really tried to figure out what exactly that meant. Mm. And Google and wasn't much help. Because I was like, well, how does that, how do you buy something in the name of a government, right? So. At least they bought it and didn't just be like, thanks. Yeah. For this. Well, it was bought two years before the U.S. actually acquired California. So basically, like, the military governor is somebody who's in a military position, but then gets put in a political position, but, like, operates with the, like, the uh, needs of the military in mind first. Right. From what I understood. It was just things back then. Not everything made a lot of sense no. to me, and it was hard to track and follow because as the nation was evolving, so was, like, the structure of things like this. Yeah. So I was like, what? <laughs> it's interesting because, you like, throughout the history, you can kind of see how um, the wars and things that we're about to get into, like, really kind of affected, it. affected all of this. It's interesting. So, in 1850, President Millard Fillmore decreed that the island must be set aside and act as a U.S. military reservation. And John C. Fremont was not happy about this. He wasn't compensated in any kind of way, like, well, at all. Five grand back then, again, we need to do better research with numbers then versus now, but that's got to be in the millions now, right? I mean, honestly. Right? Do a Google search. I would think. I don't know where my phone is. I always try to hide it when I'm Right, when I know, recording. so I'm not tempted. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean the thing is too is that he even like went on later to try to sue the US government 
it wasn't very successful. He was just trying to get, like, compensated. Since, from what I understood, he personally spent the money on right. the islands. Right. Not, like, the government gave him money to buy said islands. <laughs> Your brow was furrowed. What did you find? <laughs> uh, it would be over $170,000 okay. today. That's so, very significant. Yes, that's a lot. I that's, was thinking millions, but that's still a lot that's of money. That's still private <laughs> island money. Right, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. All right, so California wasn't technically acquired by the U.S. until the Mexican-American War ended. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, established on February 2nd, 1848, included the purchase of California, the annexation of Texas, and a whole bunch of other stuff that we're not going to get into because it's not really relevant. Um, naturally, the U.S. Army began looking into whether Alcatraz Island would be useful, mostly as a means of protection from attack for the entirety of the San Francisco Bay. Um, engineers began working on fortifying the island around 1853, and they were able to complete the very first fort there in 1858. By the end of that year, around 200 soldiers were housed on the island. They called it a garrison, which I don't know if that's still a military term now, but I was like, oh, that's Pretty nifty. Yeah, interesting. Hmm, right? <clears throat> um, when the U.S. Civil War started, they began weaponizing the island. In theory, having 85 cannons stationed around the <laughs> island's perimeter would be super-duper handy. You would think, at least. In practice, however, there were not enough soldiers available to get to said cannons and get them firing in enough time, so only a portion of the weapons could be utilized at one single time. At least, it meant the Confederates would be unable to get their hands on them, which was another intention of storing weapons on Alcatraz. Which makes sense. I mean, if you have a private island, essentially, at your disposal, why would you not right. hide shit? Especially because they do call it the rock, and it is rather rocky and mm -hmm. scary looking from looking out. It's very, like, foreboding, mm -hmm. if you will. So, as early as 1859, this is just before the Civil War broke out, Alcatraz began to be used as a place to house soldiers that were convicted of crimes. Bad. Within the next two years, the fort there was known and used as a military prison for the Department of the Pacific. The island wouldn't hold any private citizens until the beginning of 1863, and those people were like specifically accused of treason, so it's still military-based, if right. you will. The island also served as a place to train soldiers. More than 350 men were placed there by April of 1861, and that number grew to 433 by 1865. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of things happening, I that feel too. like, at the same time. Very quickly, yeah. All, like, throughout the war. Especially given all the unrest in the United States yeah. due to the Civil War. It was not Everybody was fighting, yes. Honestly, Honestly San Francisco, I feel, would be one of the safer places to be. Probably. A lot of the Civil War occurred on the East Coast, yeah. so, you know what I mean? I will happily protect somewhere that people won't probably be attacking me. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> I will take that assignment, please. Uh, it was not until 1868 that Alcatraz was actually designated as a long-term detention facility. So they built a jailhouse the year before that, and it, it was intended to house military prisoners, for example, Confederates that were caught on the East Coast. However, in 1906, Alcatraz received an influx of civilian prisoners due to the big, gigantic San Francisco earthquake, because that basically tore the city down to its 
nuts and bolts. Yeah, it literally looked like it just completely decimated. Yeah, it pretty San much Francisco. leveled San Francisco. So I guess the theory was they had to do something with these prisoners to yeah. keep them from running through the streets pillaging and, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. Lo- looting and all that kind of stuff. Because even back then, I'm sure people did the same things that people do now. Right, absolutely. See Not, an opportunity and go for it. I don't think much has changed. Right, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, so obviously those prisoners couldn't be safely housed elsewhere, so off they go to Alcatraz. Oh, yeah. Why can't I, like, completely lost my spot? <laughs> By March of the next year, Alcatraz Island was officially housing the Western U.S. military prison. They would later go on to rename it the Pacific Branch U.S. Disciplinary Barracks. It had so many names, and I was like, I don't know if these are important, but the fact that it changed names, like, seven times. I wonder if it changed any time, like, because it was all Manifest Destiny and the Civil War and, like, all that kind of stuff. So I wonder if every time we, like, turned a corner in one of those moments in history, if that's kind of when it was like, okay, now we need to realign everything. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm if, sure. From what I remember in my history classes, it was a lot of like, okay, this is how it is. Okay, five years later, this happened. Now this is how it is. Because uh, they were still picking up new states and right. you know what I mean? So on and so forth. So I'm sure it they just had to keep rejiggering things. All the things, all the time. So this basically meant that they needed to begin outfitting the island for its new purpose And to do so, they demolished the Citadel, which is basically just a three-story barracks that was built. I believe it was, like, the center of everything where they housed everybody, and they were like, well, this won't do. Let us knock it down. Right, and they knocked it down all the way to below ground level, which was where the first floor was originally located in the barracks. This became the basement for the new cell block, which construction started on in 1909. To this day... This main cell block is the island's most dominant feature. It's what you see in all the pictures. It's the pretty thing that large and your charge. eye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess if you're gonna do it, do it right. I right. suppose. Um, so this brings us to October of 1933. The U.S. Disciplinary Barracks was deactivated, and ownership of the island was transferred to the Bureau of Prisons. They, in turn, decided to designate the island as a federal prison the following year. This time around, the intention was to hold prison prisoners who were constantly causing trouble at other federal facilities. For example, the men who we're going to talk about in more t- detail later had all been in trouble for multiple escape attempts before they even got to Alcatraz. The prison would also go on to hold people that were referred to as quote-unquote conscientious objectors throughout World War I. Uh, one man, he is <clears throat> mildly famous, uh, Philip Grasser, he refused the draft and was sent to Alcatraz for that. He went on to write about his time there, a pamphlet titled Uncle Sam's Devil's Island. Well, I don't understand why they thought it would be a good idea to take everybody who is basically just mischief and mayhem all the time. And put them all together. I mean, like, let's put them together I on also have that thought because there are some famous people that were housed at Alcatraz. And I was reading through the list and I was like... Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. What? Yeah. why? Oh, my goodness. That's such a horrible idea. Do you which, think they're not going to compare notes and get more ideas on how to be better, bigger, faster, stronger, Which is exactly badder? how we, like, got to where we got. And I did <sighs> put some examples into the script, so we will definitely go over some of those famous humans in a hot moment. But first, 
the first, we wanted to let you know that the first round of prisoners, there was a total of 137 of them, arrived on the island at 9.40 in the morning on a, August 11th, 1931. So specific. <laughs> it was very specific. I was like, oh, that's a lot of... I guess, I'm, though, because of the detail yeah. that goes along with this kind of undertaking, it makes sense. You have to document everything down to the minute. Right. I think it's more so just like a safety thing, too, mm-hmm. just to make sure that they have all their ducks in a row when doing transfers and stuff like that. Because most of these initial prisoners were bank robbers and murderers, and they had to be heavily guarded throughout the process. The prison's warden was named James A. Johnston. He had his associate, which was J.E. Shuttleworth. I which like that name. <laughs> I loved it. What is J.E.? Can't you have actual names? It doesn't do even matter. He's badass because he's got Shuttleworth. Shuttleworth. <laughs> like, what? I'm going to change my name. These men had some Pretty reputations. I, hey, it works. Rolls right off the tongue. The middle name is really what puts it into mm-hmm. perspective. <laughs> so these men had a couple of reputations to go along with their interesting names. They were known as Iron Men. And so it's not really surprising that the staff at the prison was highly trained in security and not so much in rehabilitation. I find that shocking. I mean, is any of our prison system at any point focused on rehabilitation? Probably not now. I'm going to go with no. <laughs> It's terrible, though, because someplace like Alcatraz could have so much potential because they could be away from other bad yeah. influences if you weren't mushing them all in together if, if, if you with their have, bad intentions. Yeah, <laughs> if you would have taken it, like, the other direction, maybe. Right. Because this just struck me as they were trying to punish people here, but yeah. it just turned into them like sharing their them, criminal minds. Ship them off to Alcatraz, get them out of here. you got to do something with all that free time, like conjure up crazy ideas like we're going to see. It made me think of like Azkaban <laughs> almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that's where she got the Probably. Idea. Um, so Alcatraz prison became known as The Rock. They did make a movie called The Rock. Oh, yeah. With Sean Connery. He was the only person to survive getting off Alcatraz. (laughs) So they took him back to solve some crazy crime. That's hilarious. Bro, I was going to rewatch it, but I couldn't find it streaming anywhere, and then I just got irritated. Nonsense. But I do love that movie. I love a good Sean Connery in his older age Mm, action movie. He's kind of badass. That's a whole. That's a very interesting picture you just painted mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, we're gonna watch it. <laughs> we're gonna we say we're it. gonna, but we promise that could be a whole <laughs> "Don't Drink with Strangers." Right, honestly. <laughs> so the Rock, as it was known, was in use for a total of twenty nine years, which, in the grand scheme of things, is not that long. No, to have all this crazy shit happening. Mm-hmm. Um, It would come to hold some of the most notorious criminals in American history. Probably the biggest, baddest baddie was mob boss Al Capone. Al Capone. They finally got him on what, tax evasion or tax fraud? Yeah. Um, But they did wind up releasing him because he was dying of syphilis. I want to do like a whole gangster themed something. There were so many of them that were here. Because back then, as I was reading, I went down a rabbit hole after Al Capone there were all these men that I was like, who the fuck are these people? Yeah. So they all had, you know, links mm-hmm. on Wikipedia. So I'm like, let me just read <laughs> a little bit. There were so many family gangs, guys yeah. that were just in gangs, guys that died in shootouts. And like all the people that survived were sent to Alcatraz. It was I, crazy how many people. I'm very fascinated by like mob culture as a whole. I, I don't know. My great-grandfather allegedly had ties Mm. to a mob 
situation in Ohio, oddly enough. Um, so I don't know if that's just like I've heard that like rumor my whole life. Right. I never got to meet the man. He passed away well before I was born. But I don't know. So I've just always been very fascinated by the whole idea of it. I mean, you know, how many times I have I made it. you watch mm-hmm. like a documentary with me? So we're definitely going to go into detail about Al Capone. So if you're like, what the heck, guys? Don't worry. That's on the docket. Honestly, though, just reading up on Al Capone, I learned a lot of things that I did not personally yeah. know. It's very interesting because he's somebody who um, looked imposing, but at the same time... Not really. You didn't really... You couldn't take him seriously. Like, In every mugshot, he's smiling. Yeah, it's weird. It's off-putting at it's best. It's a very interesting like dichotomy of an individual there. And, they, and back <laughs> then, everybody had really hilarious nicknames. Yes. There was one guy that was like grumpy face or something because it literally was like he had a grumpy face. Mm-hmm. I was just crying because I was like, what kind of badass mobster nickname is like grumpy face? Like, y'all are crazy. <laughs> All right. Anyways, off our tangent. So probably the most, um, in addition to Al Capone, the next best known man that was housed at Alcatraz was the Birdman of Alcatraz himself, Robert Franklin Stroud, which reading up on him was... Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just wow. He's another one that, like, I have slotted to want to, like, do a more in-depth... Deep dive, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he was a convicted murderer, I think, from Alaska, like, from the Alaskan territories, um, that was really into birds. Um, during his stay at Leavenworth, which is another maximum security federal prison that I think is still operating, right? Yeah, I Leavenworth. think so. Um, which was his previous home, he raised birds because he found, I think the story went, he found either a nest of baby crows or an injured baby crow, and he raised them and loved them. He would stab a guy in the throat for looking at him crooked, but he loved his fucking birds. Like, it got to the point where he was raising birds and selling them from the prison. He even published books about birds while locked up, and he did become known as sort of like a... He was like a ornithology guy. guy. Like, they regarded him pretty well in the study of birds. very respected in that community, for And sure. I think in the prison, because he was fucking terrifying. Birds are terrifying. So birds are crazy. They're that's, dinosaurs. That's my worst nightmare. They're tiny little flying dinosaurs. Right there, a serial <laughs> murderer with a bird fetish. Well, like, I think he was to the point where it was like, I've already lost everything what does it matter he was a very violent offender who would often fight anybody he felt like whether it be the people guarding him or the person next to him he killed other prisoners he injured other guards um he was just he's a bad bad man he was bad man and he did die in incarceration it's a very sad story i mean you were a bad person is it though it was I don't want to ruin it, but yeah. he was in solitary confinement for a very long yeah. time. Hence that, the birds. <laughs> that doesn't do anybody any good right. psychologically. Um, some other examples of famous inmates are George Machine Gun Kelly, who was not only a gangster, he was also a bootlegger and bank robber, and a man named Bumpy Johnson, which I do not enjoy the name, but uh, he was an American crime boss in Harlem, which I thought was kind of badass. Mm-hmm. I see you. I run in Harlem. Fairly certain I've heard that name before. Yeah, I'm almost positive. I wonder. It didn't sound familiar to me, and I looked at his mugshot, and I was like, still got nothing. And there was not a lot of info on him, so either he was a real bad man that did bad things under the radar, or mm. he I just didn't... ran his gang. 
I didn't like a rabbit hole too much on this. Normally, I work on a script the entire length of the week, so I kind of have the time and the ability to like go down whatever tangents that maybe Sue's saved herself from going down. Um, but this week, it was our holiday launch at work. Mm. Christmas. I've seen the ads. Share it with a friend, Brie. I woke up <laughs> at 4 in the morning on Thursday, and I walked into work at 4.30 in the morning, and it was just Christmas everywhere. Makes me want to hurl. It was awful. It's literally November, it. guys. If you're into Christmas, whatever makes your heart happy, but yeah, don't I mean, shove it down my throat. Honestly. Let me hang on to Halloween for a people while. People give me all the business when I like start talking about Halloween in the summer, and I've only really started doing that, and I'm like, you guys get Christmas in August. Right. There was literally Christmas trees at one of the, like the home stores in August. I have a friend who was at Disney and it was like overnight on the 31st. Halloween turned into Christmas. <laughs> that's cr- I mean that's got to be so much work. Holy shit. I they do behind the scenes stuff at Disney so you yeah. can see like how they do it, but they have to speed it up to 8 million percent because otherwise how yeah. how do you get it done in one night? Parks open and they get early access. Like, that shit's crazy to me. Wow. Wow. Sweating just thinking about it. (laughs) That's crazy. But anywho, I (laughs) didn't give myself a lot of time to work on this script this week because I was just mentally and emotionally and physically exhausted. All the good stuff's here. It's just, I went down the gangster rabbit hole because I had time. I was just Mm -hmm. clicking left, right, and center. Machine Gun Kelly's very interesting. Yeah. There were a lot of them. It's that probably like, going to oh, be yeah. like either a compilation kind of thing, or maybe we'll talk about like specific families. Mm-hmm. There's some, we're going to get into it. Gangs. Yeah, something somehow. Everybody we're gonna had a happen. gang or a family back then. <laughs> Pretty much. All right. So, as you can imagine, all of that aggression eventually reached a tipping point on May second, nineteen forty six. Bernard Paul Coy. A bank robber from Kentucky, along with five accomplices, devised a plan to forcefully escape from the prison. And the key word here is forcefully. forcefully. Coy was the ringleader of this whole event, and he had carefully studied the habits of those around him for months. The guards, the inmates, shift changes, any little behavioral thing. He studied what everybody's jobs were specifically, who had more access maybe than others as far as inmates went. Like, it was just... I guess, though, if you have nothing better to do than sit there and be watching, like, why not? So... Once he knew what to do, and more importantly, probably when, when, he put everything into motion. Things started with him breaking into the West Gun Gallery. This allowed him to quickly secure a weapon, more specifically a riot club. There he waited for his accomplices. At the time, there was only two other ones that had managed to be out of their cells. And their job was to lure the officer out of the area of the gun gallery. And when they did, Coy jumped him. He clubbed the man, forcing him onto the ground. And then Coy proceeded to strangle him into unconsciousness with his own necktie. Yeah, neckties are a bad choice. Especially in instances like this. Be like D.B. Cooper. Take off one of those. Your slip-on? Yeah. (laughs) Throw that shit away. Exactly. Um, Now, three out of the six convicts involved were completely armed and went on to carry out the rest of the plan. They captured nine guards in total and managed to lock them into a couple of cells. They confiscated all of the CO's keys, but couldn't actually locate the one singular key they were looking for. (laughs) 
That is because C.O. Miller had managed to conceal the key in question and hide it in the toilet of the cell they were in. So, as you're going to guess, this didn't bode well for the convicts. Their plans relied on being able to open all the doors. But, because fuck it, we've come this far, they just kept going and released the other three accomplices. Because now that they had keys to the cell, they could just be like, woohoo, we're just bringing everybody free. Yep. The breakout is soon discovered. The distressed sirens began to wail, and chaos absolutely erupted. While the U.S. Marines were on the scene helping to gather all the workers and other inmates outside, a battle is full-on raging inside the cell block. The convicts responsible realized that things were not going in their favor and had become desperate. One of them, a man named Sam Shockley, took a revolver and just started blindly shooting into the cell holding the COs. Like, they were basically just like, okay, well, now our backs are up against the wall. We're going to take you all with us. They're going to try to shoot their way out, I would assume, is their mindset. Bastards. Rude. So, the warden and the associate warden were able to get the guys together and come up with a strike plan, which they then began to execute. The team made their way into the jailhouse, returning fire and trying to suppress the convict's assault. It took almost two days of battling for the gunfire to finally cease. I couldn't even imagine. Isn't that crazy? In a prison? Like just hallways and fences and doors and cement. Um, By the end, when it was all said and done, four of the men responsible ended up dead, in addition to two COs, uh, one of whom succumbed to injuries sustained during the attack, and two Federal Bureau of Prisons officers. There were several other inmates and guards that were injured as well, just in the crossfire, because, again, everybody was just shooting guns all willy-nilly-like. I I imagined it, in my head, like, a very, like, wild, wild west kind Mm -hmm. of scene, but But inside of jail. But with cement walls and metal, so I just had ricochets and shrapnel and all those ideas in my head also. I'm going to have to try to find it. I can't remember. It was a few years ago at this point, but I watched, like like, a small documentary, I think, at, like like, the most intense, like, prison riots or something, mm-hmm. and that was definitely on there. Oh, I didn't yeah, really sure. think about it until I was writing There's this, some, but... sadly, that are worse, but this one, you figure it's on an island, it's maximum security federal penitentiary, like, In there's... two days? Yeah. 48 full hours, pretty no, much, of constant gunfire and just chaos. That's terrifying. It's stressful just reading about just it. Just thinking about it. <laughs> So, obviously, because of all of this trauma, it took months before any sort of normalcy would return to the rock. Despite moving past the incident, the scars from the Battle of Alcatraz would forever remain. The last two convicts that survived that took part in initiating all this were given additional sentences. Each received 99 more years, and they were actually later executed via the gas chamber at St. Quentin. Mm. Bad. I mean... But again, there was one man that was like, he had an appeal on the docket for like two days after this all began. He potentially could have been set free because of that, but then he was dead. So it was like, y'all are crazy. And as we're about to see, (laughs) it did not need to get to that point. No, ever. (laughs) At all. So now we're going to get into the escape attempt that was successful to an... An extent, at least. We're going to start by introducing you to those involved. First up is Frank Lee Morris. He was born September 1st, 1926 in Washington, D.C. 
At 11 years old, he was put into foster care due to being abandoned by his parents. That really sucks. I know. Two years later... However... (laughs) He committed his first crime and received his first conviction. By the time he hit his late teens, he had been arrested for all sorts of things. Possession of narcotics, armed robbery, pretty much you name it, I think, at that point. (sighs) Frank eventually makes his way down to Miami Beach and gets arrested for grand larceny, car theft, and armed robbery. If you're going to do it, do it big. Might as well. Frank, I see you. After serving his time in the Sunshine State, as well as some time in Georgia, he got locked up in the Louisiana State Penitentiary. There, he was serving a 10-year sentence for bank robbery, but, excuse me, but was able to escape the prison. Hmm, bad. He wasn't recaptured until a year later. <laughs> and that was only because, <laughs> you guys, he was committing another oh, robbery. I love it. Like, stop. Just stop. What is wrong with you? Frank, bad Frank. Well, I think that's one of those things, like we mentioned, like the lack of rehabilitation. This is what we see. This is the result of that. There's right. just repeat offenders, and it's just a revolving door into the prison. Right. Which, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. Like, I can't even begin to, like, argue what I that is. I can't even fathom I'm at glad this point. that's left to the suits in Washington. I... I want no part of it. Don't understand. I do know that I don't think that what we have going on is ne- necessarily great. I concur. So, he committed this other robbery, and then he got sent to Alcatraz on January 20th, 1960. A couple little fun facts about inmate number AZ1441. He spent most of his early time in jail serving other prisoners' lunch, and after taking an IQ test, he was reportedly ranked among the top 2% of the general prison population. So not only is he smart, but now he has a butt-ton of time on Uh, his hands. And other people who, like... (laughs) Share a like mind. Yeah. Yeah. Who mm -hmm. probably would enable his bad behavior. Shocking. So next up are the Anglin brothers, John Mm -hmm. and Clarence. John was born May 2nd, 1930, with Clarence falling on May 11th, 1931. Ain't nobody wasting no time. Zero time. Because they were two out of 13 children. That's so many. Horrifying. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, get off of me. What are you get doing? Stay, you get your own bedroom <laughs> down the hall. In another house, for God's <laughs> sake. See you later, bye. Anywhere near me. Ugh. They grew up poor in Donaldson, Ville, Georgia, with their parents who were seasonal farm workers. The family moved to Ruskin, Florida in the early 1940s for work. There were tomato fields located there that were able to provide maybe a little bit more of a stable income than they were used to in Georgia. Um, The two brothers, they call these, they call children that close together, I think, Irish twins. Mm -hmm. Because they're literally a a year apart. Yeah. Almost to the day. Yeah. That is bananas to me. So the two brothers became inseparable as children. They grew up doing a lot of the same activities. Most notably, they were skilled swimmers. Clarence was the first one to be caught doing something nefarious because at 14, he broke into a service station. In the early 50s, the boys decided to tag team their robberies because, of course... Why not? Two heads are better than one. However, they were at least like... Mildly smart in this respect, they often targeted closed businesses because they were not trying to injure anyone, even accidentally. Um, According to them, which take that with a grain of salt, (laughs) they only used a weapon once, and it wasn't even a real one, it was just a toy. 
1958, John and Clarence convinced one an, another one of their brothers to rob a bank in Alabama. They all get caught. They all end up receiving 35-year sentences. They were to serve them in three separate prisons, however. After escape attempts, John and Clarence end up together again at Alcatraz. John was inmate number AZ1476, and he arrived on October 24th, 1960. So that's not long after Frank. Nope. Clarence, inmate number AZ1485, arrived on January 10th, 1961. Our last one to go over is Alan West. He was born on March 25th, 1929 in New York City. He would go on to be arrested over 20 times in his life. In 1955, he found himself in the Atlanta Penitentiary for car theft. He gets transferred to Florida State Prison at some point, and he must not have liked it there since he tried to escape. <laughs> We're sensing a pattern here. I'm seeing what's happening. This was all it took to get him his own one-way ticket to Alcatraz. He was 28 years old when he arrived and was given inmate number A. Z1335. Hmm. Hmm. So, we've got all these fine gentlemen all in one spot. <laughs> so, let's get into the actual escape itself. Uh, it took place in 1962. However, it all began in December of 1961 when the aforementioned group of guys were assigned to cells next to each other upon their separate arrivals at Alcatraz. They sort of already knew each other from previous stints served in Florida and Georgia prisons and got along quite nicely from all accounts. Uh, it didn't take very long for the four of them to come up with a plan, because of course not. Frank Morris took on more of a leadership role when it came to this plan, which of course revolved around escaping the rock. And also not surprising. Yeah, I, They just wanted out. He was the smart one. He was. He was the smart one. The four of them would go on to spend six months preparing. The attention to detail in this, guys, is impressive, to be honest. Again, if you would have used your power, your powers, powers for, for good, good instead <laughs> of this. They went to work on, this was kind of like their first step. So they went to work on widening the ventilation ducts under the sinks in their cells. We're going to make sure that we have our sources linked for you guys, as always, and also access to pictures if we don't The pictures are really fucking amazing they're, to me, given the fact of what they're using to do this. It's... I was astonished. Again, it kind of it just adds another impressive layer to everything, because what they did was they used tools that they found, like, around the prison, so, like, discarded saw blades, metal spoons from the mess hall... And they made an electric drill <laughs> from the motor of a vacuum cleaner. Again, why choose evil? <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I don't know that I could do any of these things, no. let alone saw through a wall. I'm super crafty <laughs> and I'm definitely getting better intuition when it comes to that kind of stuff. However, I, you want me you to want, make a drill? I'd be like, okay. That's hilarious. Bye. I'm I'll gonna, just stay here. I guess I'm just doomed to stay in these right? four walls. <laughs> So they took this little handmade drill and they used it to create small holes that were close together all around the section of the wall that they intended to remove. I envisioned like little puncture spots yeah, sort of in pretty like much, a square that they could fit their body yep, through. Pretty much exactly that. Um, and I know what you're thinking. That would be loud and probably <laughs> hard to hide in a jail, in a federal prison. 
And you would be correct, but they had solutions to both of these problems. Which are hilarious. The men would actively choose to work during the prison's music hour, and thanks to the ambient noise created in the prison itself, along with Morris, his own musings on the accordion. An accordion, though. What? What? What prison gives you an accordion to play? I know you didn't bring it with you. Right. What? My mind is blown. So because of that, the noise was pretty well masked. And as for the hole in the wall, they just would simply cover it. They used painted cardboard or honestly whatever else was handy. And apparently nobody cared to check close enough because nobody noticed. Nobody checked on them. (laughs) So directly behind the cell's wall was a utility corridor that largely went unused. Once they were able to gain access into this area, they were like, well, shit. Like, what do we got back Let's here? Let's go exploring. They discovered that they could actually make it to the roof of their cell block inside the building. It sort of looked to me like a little landing. Yeah. That was covered by the roof, but yeah. still out of view of anybody it else. It made me think of, like, uh, like small little, those attics, what are they called? Like, they're, like, little sleepaway attics. Oh, almost. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's kind of, like, the the vibe I got from it. Because it's you can barely stand up. Yeah. You kind of have to hunch over. But, but they it's didn't need to stand Significant up. space. So uh, this, obviously, was the perfect spot to set up a secret little workshop. So they squirreled away all the materials that they'd been taking and hid them up there. And they were actively gathering up there in preparation for the escape. So they'd have meet <laughs> secret club meetings and, like, build <laughs> stuff. And, like, it was just, just hang crazy. Out. It's great. That's crazy. How would nobody notice? That's, I have so many questions. That's the thing that really gets... What was everybody doing? Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Because that's the thing. Like, not only were they able to completely drill through concrete... Mm-hmm. They also were able to be missing for God only knows how long. For like, not probably not hours at a time, because they did say somebody would like act as lookout. But, but at still, least an hour. That's four men just. <laughs> Keep in mind, you guys, that Alcatraz Prison is located on an island in the San Francisco Bay. So the men not only needed to successfully break out of jail, but they also needed to be able to navigate the environment that surrounded them. It presented quite the challenge, but thankfully, good old Frank Morris had access to magazines that apparently were all about boating and, like, engineering and shit like that. So I think back then, these magazines just offered things that were like, this is how you would build a canoe out of found materials, because it was, like, interesting. Yeah. I mean, that is interesting. They'd be like, look at this breakthrough in science, and it was like obviously not how to build a drill out of a vacuum (laughs) cleaner but like still it was like random things a a lot of it was like hobby related so i think that's Mm. where the boating and okay perhaps stuff like that i could be talking out of my ass well i mean my dad used to get one of these magazines and i was like oh there's some weird shit in here it's all science related and mechanical related it's just like what (laughs) that makes a lot of sense why would frank morris or Bob need to know this. I'm happy you do know it, but what? I mean, (laughs) you know? Well, it's interesting that you say that because one of these magazines included an issue of Popular Mechanics, and it actually featured a design for life preservers. And this was what the men decided to follow while making their own life preservers. 
They also intended to make a rubber raft and had found articles showing how to waterproof such things. There were also articles detailing how to deal with navigation hazards and channel buoys while out on the water, and this information helped the group immensely. So I just had a little story time. I have a friend who went to McDowell High School, which is a local high school And that's where I went to high school. Um, so in his gym class, he said they had to do like a survival thing in the pool. Oh, yeah. Where you jump into the pool fully clothed. Yep. You take your jeans and swing your wet jeans over your head until there's air filled into them and tie them off. Mm -hmm. And you can then have a little life preserver for a while. Yeah. I was like, that sounds fucking terrible. I Did they not know about this then, though? Because you know they wore jeans and work shirts yeah. in the prisons. They didn't have jumpsuits like we have now, you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. That's definitely a thing, though. I never participated. I got migraines from the chlorine, so I didn't get to stay in pool class. I um, had my period a lot during <laughs> pool class. It's I, just a lot to be a girl in high school and have to mm -hmm. swim in a pool and then be ready for next period in 15 minutes. And my pool was my first period of the day. Oh, like, how rude. <laughs> no, thank you. My doctor had to write me out. I was falling asleep in my English class, which is what I had after. And I remember this so specifically because the teacher I had was a man named Dr. Moyer. And he was so specific about us having to call him doctor. And anybody who went mm -hmm. to MIHS totally knows who I'm fucking talking about because he was such... He had OCD. His tie matched, like, the insignia on his pressed white dress shirt. And I would fall asleep in his classes, and he would get pissed. Mm -hmm. It's because I had this migraine from the chlorine. My doctor had to write me out. I had to go be with Jim with all the sophomores. Mm -hmm. So also, like, trauma-inducing for a 14-year-old girl. <laughs> I just am crying laughing thinking of high schoolers whipping wet jeans over their heads to form life vests. That could not have gone over well. I just... I'm we'll have to ask Jen about it. I still, I still, like, giggle every time. Like, I'm even now, I'm like, that's stupid. But not, literally everybody I've talked to, they're like, oh, yeah, you yeah. fling your jeans over your head. I'm like, what? We never did that in Fairview. Apparently, I'm just supposed to call the Coast Guard, and they're going to come rescue me. That tracks. I don't, I don't <laughs> need a flotation device. I'll just swim. Like, what? It's hilarious. All right. Now that story time's over, it just makes For me now. laugh every time. Not that that would get you across the San Francisco Bay right. flinging your jeans about. But we'll like, ask Jen about it because she's going to come join us in a couple soon, weeks or yeah. maybe next. I can't remember. Very soon. We'll have to ask her about mm. survival pool class. <laughs> survival pool class. I can't. <laughs> All right. So anyways, back to the Alcatraz escape. So the four of these gentlemen would head up to their secret cubby shop to work on their projects. They would take turns being the lookout while the other three crafted makeshift life preservers and a rubber raft. The raft itself was actually made from over 50 stolen raincoats. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> along with some donated materials from other inmates. I love how it was donated materials. Because, like, I don't want to participate, but hell yeah, go you guys. Right? Here's my raincoat. Have at it. You may have whatever you need. <laughs> right? Um, so it ended up being on the larger side, because again, it had to fit four adult males in it. It clocked in at six feet by 14 feet. The escapees actually stitched all the seams by hand and then went in with a liquid plastic that was available from the shops in the prison, which, why? <laughs> right? Okay. Same reason that Frank got to have an, an accordion. accordion. <laughs> For no apparent reason. <laughs> Um, and then they sealed everything. They actually said they used the steam pipes yeah. that were coming up the wall to go s and short Isn't of... That, the, 
the ingenuity here is just astonishing to me. Fascinating. The attention to detail, like I love every part These of it. These men created a rubber raft out of raincoats rain and basically like epoxy mm -hmm. and steam. And a, and a pipe. I think it was a pipe. Yeah, they were like, you're right. It's a you're hot right. pipe. Yeah, you're right. It's fine. We'll just seal it. It's just crazy to me. It's fucking smart. They also wound up making themselves some paddles because with any good raft, you're going to need some paddles. And for these, they actually used plywood and whatever random screws they could find. Because again, they had a shop on the island. If I so. recall correctly, in your notes, you said that they were. I would like to quote rudimentary at best. Yes. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> there are pictures of them on the FBI's website. Yeah. They're not great. Because <laughs> they, they they did find a paddle and I was like, the fuck am I looking it, at? It looked like a piece of driftwood. If you mm -hmm. didn't know what you were looking for, you'd think it came off of a bigger boat yeah. or something. You know what I it's mean? It's almost like they had everything else figured out down to the wire. It's like when you're making like a school presentation, but then all of a sudden you realize you don't know how to close it out. And you just, like, throw some shit together. Right. <laughs> and you're just like, this is fine. Fuck it. This will do. I don't trust those paddles. Mm. You shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> they, so the guys were not ready yet. However, they this, needed to create their decoys first. My favorite part. This is the best part, I think, of the whole situation. Again, they, they, there's photos of these. And yeah. I was like... Oh, dear God, no. But also impressive. Yeah. Also impressive. The only reason the one looks scary is... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were... They were made... Okay. So what they did is they made these paper mache heads that were designed to look like their own faces. Oh, so did they do that during art time? I'm just <laughs> in their secret my little, for fun in their cubby. Could you imagine, like, they're in, like, an actual, like, prison ran art class, and they're like, I'm just sculpting my own face. Look how beautiful I am. Nothing to see here. Move along, <laughs> sir. The heads oh. were made from soap, mm -mm. toothpaste, mm -mm. concrete dust, and toilet paper. I, again... You are working so well with what you have. So I'm creative. Like astonished, but it gets better. It gets so much better. <laughs> Once they constructed the base, if you will, Ugh. they used paint that matched their skin tone, along with real hair. <laughs> you guys, they went to the barber shop and they like got it off the floor oh, or out of the garbage. It's gonna go like, in the garbage. You might as well be like, "Oh, can I sweep this up?" I'd me, be like, "Have at it." Let I guess, me get that hair. Know. I guess. <laughs> And what they did was they gave their little dummy heads a very lifelike appearance. Considering what they were working with, what the situation was in, it's very impressive. Under constant supervision, like, I, you get an A-plus in this art class. They planned to lay the paper mache heads in their beds and tuck some clothes and towels under the blankets. And this was intended to fool the night guard into believing that they were in bed all night, giving them time to slip away into the darkness. And you know what cracks me up is that Bob's Burgers did like their own little thing, remember? Mm -hmm. And then when they flung back I think Tina's, it, it was just, <laughs> just the post-it. Uh-huh. Tina. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jeans was the garbage. Yep. I was like, I love this. Tina, of, or Louise, of course, was the only one that like came up with anything good. Actually creative. <laughs> so by the evening of June 11th, everything was ready to rock and roll. Sort of, kind of. Uh, mm -hmm. Alan West, unfortunately, for no one, ran into some difficulties when it was time to get up and go. He didn't actually realize that the concrete around the ventilator grill had hardened back up, 
So he went to work on resizing the hole, but was ultimately left behind because, Bish, if you're not here when we're leaving in an instant like this, see you later, bye. This train's got to keep We don't have time to wait. We don't have time to come back for you. None of that shit. Mm -mm. So the other three men got to the workspace, gathered up their raft and life preservers and weird oars, (laughs) and then started climbing up and out through a ventilation shaft. They ended up on the roof. Almost free and clear. Um, (laughs) Guards did hear a loud crash, allegedly, right around this time. But since it only happened once, and it was the middle of the night, they didn't actually look any further into it. Which, if I I But how would they have discovered it anyways? I think that crash, too, and I think you wrote it in your notes, was from them being in the workspace. Mm -hmm. Not so much them getting onto the roof. So it probably didn't even sound that loud. It was probably just a... Like a muffled "Hmm." loud crash, if you will. Muffled. (laughs) Once they made it to the roof, they had to then shimmy down a vent pipe for about 50 feet. I think they said it was near the kitchen, and I was just Mm -hmm. like, huh. Interesting detail. (laughs) I like it. I love every part of this. It honestly feeds into the picture in my head of, like, a Home Alone-style movie Mm -hmm. (laughs) of all of this. Not only did they have to shimmy down the vent pipe, they had to then climb to... 12-foot barbed wired fences. Not one, but two. (laughs) When they made it to the northeast shoreline, they located a blind spot. There was searchlights and things, you know, at this point. Like, well, it just runs all night, like your typical ones. Yeah. And so they were just looking for a blind spot so they could sit there and begin inflating their rafts. Which they allegedly did with, like... A thing you stoke a fire with. Yes. And they just pumped it up. Yes. But they had altered it to be more efficient in some way, shape, or form. So, again, these men were so creative. And very smart. It's astonishing mm-hmm. what they did with so little, you know. It's believed that the men launched the raft around 10 p.m. with the objective of reaching Angel Island, which was located two, two miles to the north. So, because of their excellent hiding skills and the creepy dummy heads, (laughs) the missing men were not discovered until the next morning. The ruse put together by the escapees proved 100% successful. In fact, I'm pretty sure the reason one of the heads you'll see when you look at the pictures looks like somebody punched it in its face, and it's because a guard poked his baton through the rails and was like wake up like why aren't you answering me when i'm talking to you and the head went face face down on the ground could you imagine being that guard i'd be like oh (laughs) whoopsie either i just killed this man or oh god somebody's escaped you know what i mean right so over the course of the next 10 days multiple agencies worked together to conduct thorough searches of the air sea and the land all the islands san francisco the whole nine yards on june 14th the coast guard find a paddle floating about 200 yards south of angel island later that same day a different boat finds a bundle of plastic wrapped around some letters and a wallet dun 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 <laughs> Inside the wallet, investigators found the names, addresses, and some photographs of the Anglins' family and friends. Plot thickens. Dun, dun, dun. On June 21st, pieces of raincoat material were found along a beach located near the Golden Gate Bridge. The next day, 
a prison boat finds a deflated life jacket. It was made from the same materials as the other items and was found about 50 yards from the shore of Alcatraz Island. Hmm. Per the FBI, this is the only real physical evidence from the escape outside of the decoys left behind that they found. Which, and it is all documented on the FBI's website because, again, for all intents and purposes, nobody knows what happened. Right. So, they still have photographs and shit. It's really fucking weird. It's so interesting. The paddles are creepy. It's all creepy. It's all-, <laughs> all right, so... The FBI almost immediately is under the impression that the men must have drowned. It seems that they justified this belief because, quote, the individual's personal effects were the only belongings they had and the men would have drowned before leaving them behind, end quote. Despite the FBI standing firm in this theory, no human remains were found at the time. In mid-July... A Norwegian ship spotted a body floating in the ocean about 15 nautical miles from the Golden Gate Bridge. They did not collect nor report the body at the time of discovery. They waited until October to even mention it. The San Francisco County coroner didn't think that it could be one of the missing men, mostly because it was highly unlikely that the body would still be floating after so much time had passed. It had been about a month, if not a little Mm -hmm. over at this point. Yeah. The coroner speculated that the body likely belonged to a banker who had unfortunately jumped from the bridge five days before the sighting occurred, which lines up a little bit more with what the situation was. Because, again, it feeds right out into the Pacific Ocean. There are strong currents. There are big waves. There are you know, sharks and predators and things that would be, like, mm, yummy. You right. know what I mean? So, like... After a month, it seems... It's a little far-fetched, I feel. Yes, absolutely. For sure. We should note, though, that there are coroners from the surrounding counties that went on to challenge this opinion. I don't know that anything necessarily came of it. I think They it did was not, like, but I think they publicly were like, well, you can't discount it because of X, Y, and Z. It's, I feel like it's one it of those things... It might be a thing. ...where in, like, a trial, somebody's, like, objection, and they're like, okay, well, it was noted, but we're moving along. Right. And the FBI sure did. They noted it, because obviously they documented it. Right. But they were like, not much we can do about it now. If nobody collected it, we only just saw it. And the FBI seemed a little over this whole thing because right around the same time, the FBI investigators publicly announced the official position of the Bureau. Their theory was that the men could have possibly reached Angel Island. However, their odds of surviving the turbulent currents and the freezing cold waters of the bay were minimal at best. Because again, like I said, I've been to San Francisco, and even in like June, I was like, wow, I need a winter coat and pants. It is cold. Think, think like... The Titanic, like, the, while it's wildly theatrical, but the the idea behind it is there. Oh, like, yeah, people sure. still froze to death in the ocean. Well, and also, that's a lot of currents to contend with and things that were happening. and hmm, Right, yeah. exactly. So, I see you, FBI. <laughs> All right. So, again, like we mentioned earlier, Alan West was left behind because of a malfunction with the cement thingy. So, they were like, peace <laughs> out, bro. He did go on to fully cooperate with the investigators and was not charged by the end of things. He shared some details of what the men had actually planned to do if they were to reach land, which included stealing clothes and a car. West was transferred to a prison in Washington State and then back to the Atlanta Penitentiary. He was released in 1967 after the completion of his sentence, but 
As is too often the case, his freedom did not last too long. He went on to be arrested in Florida in 1968 for grand larceny. While he was locked up in Florida State Prison, he committed a murder where he stabbed a fellow inmate. He ultimately died in 1978 while serving multiple sentences, one of which was actually life for the murder conviction from 72. So he didn't... Yeah. So his trajectory was either meet a demise in the cold, unforgiving waters in the San Francisco Bay. I think I would pick the Bay. I would too, I think. Over Florida Penitentiary any day. Or Florida State Prison. No, thank you. I don't want anything to do with any of it, to Mm -hmm. be honest. There's that, yeah. There was another documented incident of an escape from Alcatraz. And oddly enough, I feel like this one isn't, like, widely known. I didn't know about it until I read it. I was like, oh. I had heard about it before, but I, I never ceased to find it amazing. In December of 1962, John Paul Scott made himself some water wings from rubber gloves <laughs> and he used them to swim from Alcatraz to Fort Point, which was located near the southern end of the Golden Gate Bridge. Scott was ultimately found by a group of teenagers. He was exhausted and suffering from hypothermia. But he made it, guys. He but made he it. made it, which is the whole point, right? He was ultimately returned to Alcatraz, though. After spending some time at an army hospital recovering, like I said, this is the only documented incident of an inmate escaping and reaching the shore by swimming. And, and didn't you say they do like a triathlon? They do. So it's, there. It's, I, it's literally, I, I'm 98% sure it's called Escape from Alcatraz or something like yeah. that, where they swim that route. As part of, they, so they run, they bike, and they swim. That's so funny. How about kiss my ass? No. Because <laughs> that's, it's like two point something miles I'll stick to my shots of fireball and the color on things. Yeah, that, that was fine by me. I don't know about the mud run. I don't even think I could do that again. But no. the color run's good. Glad we did it for the experience. <laughs> I'm not interested in ever doing that one again. Too much cow poop water. Too much. If you want to hear about that, I'm sure we'll talk about it further. We'll mention, we're, we're recording a Don't Drink with Strangers after this. We'll bring we'll it up to that. <laughs> so eventually, The Rock was closed. It, this happened March 21st, 1963. It turns out the operations cost per prisoner was too high in comparison to any other prison, basically. We're talking 10 bucks at Alcatraz a day per inmate versus $3 a day per inmate at an Atlanta facility, just for example. The decision to close Alcatraz was also influenced by over 50 years of salt water that had severely eroded the buildings. So. And you can tell mm-hmm. when you look at those pictures, man. Yeah. I've never actually been on the island. I've seen it from a distance. But it makes it just look... I mean, obviously, I haven't been there either, but from the pictures, it just looks like this like really worn down, like almost decrepit building, which it is at this point, but... It just gives it a whole other vibe that, like, no other facility has. All right. The FBI officially closed this case on New Year's Eve of 1979. They concluded that the escapees most likely drowned. They said that the remains of the raft and other personal effects found was evidence that the the raft fell apart and that the men were likely swept out to sea. The FBI did hand over the files to the U.S. Marshal Service, where an active warrant was put out. 
According to one deputy U.S. Marshal, the U.S. Marshal Service doesn't give up looking for people. And that was a direct quote. Badass. He was like, we don't quit. Like, this I was like, the oh, end of I that. pictured like gunslinging and a 10-gallon hat or something. There were tips coming in as late as 2009, and the warrant itself doesn't in- expire until 2030. Well, they said so at that point, each of the men that could was involved would be over 100 years old, so they would have expired of natural causes if they were not killed in the bay. Yeah. Which I was like... Oh, okay. At this point, yeah. We're going to hold sure. on to it for that long. They really are. I see you. <laughs> so when all was said and done at Alcatraz, there were a total of 14 escape attempts made by 36 different men during the 29 years it was a functioning prison. 23 of those men were recaptured. Six were shot and killed. Two of them drowned. And the last five were listed as, quote, missing and presumed drowned, end quote, <laughs> which also may have played in the role... A role in the decision to shut it down. Blah. Well, I mean, what did they think was going to happen if you put a bunch of people who already tried to escape jail and together? have a lot of time, and then they're all in one spot? Mm-hmm. And apparently, they have access to things like motors and accordions <laughs> and accordions and art, craft-related things <laughs> like epoxy. What? I'm not. I'm not kidding. Again, use it for good, people. Don't use it for evil. It's insane. The dummy heads. Those, that was good. The raft was good. I know not good in practice, obviously, but like in theory, I was like, oh, okay. I see you. So speaking of theories, we're going to start getting into all of the claimed sightings of the escapes from over the years. Because where we're at now in the story, guys, is the men, the men got off. Alcatraz Island in some way, shape, or form, but we don't know what happened to them after the There thoughts. was never really evidence of them actually dying. Right. There was never really evidence of them actually surviving. Right. So we're in this sort of weird limbo where it's like, it could go either way. Exactly. And then naturally, like most kinds of these stories, there's going to be people who claim to have seen them. Oh my god, people love it. But the thing is with these ones... is Some of it might could be true. There's some really credible... Uh, leads and tips and things. I that was we're like, gonna go the word over. isn't evidence. What's no, another it's not. word? It's not <laughs> evidence at all. <laughs> so, in January of 1965, the FBI uh, investigate a rumor that Clarence was living in Brazil, but no evidence of that being true was found at all. Which I thought was interesting. Right. Um, in 1967, a man who claimed to be a longtime friend of Morris. I think he said he went to high school with him. He said that he saw him in Maryland, citing that he now sported a small beard and mustache, but that was all of the details that this quote-unquote friend was willing to share with the FBI. The England brothers have the most surrounding them, really, and I don't know if it's just because there was two of them or the fact that they were brothers or what lended like lent to the lore this, of to this. This to me has like some mythical proportions to it. It's it like really does. Bigfoot or you know <laughs> yeah. a yeti or something like. Well, could you imagine being the family, especially John and Clarence? They had eleven brothers and sisters and you know, a set and of dad, parents yeah. that probably miss them being available to talk to well, on I'm occasion. I'm sure they wanted, wanted to know one way or another what what happened, yeah. what the end result was, you know. Any case or story that we cover or watch a thing about or listen to a thing about or any of that jazz, the ones that there are no closure 
really just gets me. Those are the worst. Yeah. Even this, I know these men were not like they're not wonderful good men. members of society, but like at the end of the day, that's somebody's brother. I feel or for uncle, the family you know? who have to like suffer through the yeah. aftermath more than anything. So. One weird thing with the England brothers, the family members received several postcards over the years. Many of them were unsigned. There was one that was signed with the name Jerry. Mm -hmm. Another one was signed with Jerry and Joe. And this is the most interesting. There was a Christmas card allegedly from 1962 that said, quote, to mother from John, Merry Christmas. I believe that they said there was no envelope with it, so they couldn't track the postmark or any of that kind of things. Which would make sense if he decided to risk putting his own name. Like, if it was true. Let's operate under that assumption. I definitely put it in an envelope. But they threw it out because, you know, ain't nobody a snitch in this family. And they're also (laughs) probably not thinking, like, what if they just opened it and threw it out without even, like, putting two and two together? True. True, true, true. I do dumb shit like that all the time. (laughs) So another brother named Robert claimed to have received several phone calls over the years where the other person on the other end of the line was just breathing. That's creepy. But that, again, I... I'm always like, it might could be one of the brothers. It yeah. also might could be just some creepy person that's like, <sighs> mm-hmm. I like torturing people. Well, because this, this you know, made national news and all that stuff. So, I mean, people definitely well, knew how to, like, knew who the family was. Oh, for sure. And I'm going to assume they lived in the same home they always yeah. had. They kept the same phone number, perhaps, in case the brothers came home. I mean, yeah. Also, we didn't have super great ways to track things like that back right. then. So... It literally... This one could have been Could have been anybody. I lied. I think this next part is the most interesting. <laughs> the mother received flowers on every Mother's Day up to the year she died. And from what all we read, there was no card, nothing signed, nothing. Just And none of the other people in the family claimed to be responsible for right. it. Right. Nobody said, oh, I sent those to mom. <laughs> so the mother died in 1973. And according to family, two unusually tall women <laughs> in heavy makeup attended the funeral. I think that's sweet. It gives me chills to, like, think about, honestly. I'm not going to lie. Part of me is like, I hope they survive. I mean, at that point, you put a lot of effort into... (laughs) So wouldn't you straighten your path out after that if you survive? Fingers crossed. Well, you'd have to at this point. I think that they hit the point of no return. That if they got caught something doing something... Oh, my dear Lord. You'd be in so much trouble. Especially if it was in, like... (laughs) A state that wasn't California. Right. Like, if they managed to get to, like, Texas. Florida again. Or Florida <laughs> again. Like. So, unfortunately, the Anglin father died in 1989. Robert, again, the brother, said he saw two strangers in full beards show up at the funeral home. And, like, I would imagine that those beards probably looked suspicious. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been notable. Right. Or, or just the fact that Robert didn't recognize the people right out, like, my right other, off the bat. My other thought was that Robert just wanted to see his brothers and anybody. Yeah. So. And you know what? That's okay. But you never know. A lot of the gangsters that I read about when I was down my weird rabbit hole had <laughs> a lot of plastic surgery done. Mm. That was actually not horrible for, like, the 20s and 30s. So plastic surgery by the 60s could have come a little bit farther. So mm. you never know. They could they could have had their faces altered or their appearance altered. That's very interesting. 
I grief does a lot of weird things to people, so I definitely could see it going either way. I kind of like the idea that these horrible men risked the freedom that they currently had to, to go like send say goodbye flowers and then to say goodbye to their mother and father. Yeah. That gives me a little bit of like heartwarming. The teeniest, tiniest of warm fuzzies. Again, we know they're not great people. <laughs> right. We're not, but still. I like this part. Right. <laughs> the and plus, you know what too, like I'm a sucker for a good conspiracy theory. Like I don't buy into them. Let me just preface that. Right. <laughs> like I use logic and critical thinking when making decisions, but like I love cuz some of it sometimes the conspiracy theories I can see some truth in some of them. I'm mm-hmm. like maybe that's not so crazy. I think it's like with rumors. There's always like a little inkling of truth and things like a grain of truth at the bottom yeah so from the mid 60s to the 70s there were six to seven alleged sightings in northern florida or georgia of the brothers just like random ones that weren't really notable in any way but uh still worth documenting so yeah there had to have been something to it for sure this is where I personally think shit gets redonkulous. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of the brothers claimed that he had photographic evidence that the two men were alive and were in fact living in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Which, if you'll remember, he was supposedly seen one of them. Clarence was Clarence. seen in Brazil yeah. several years earlier. Um, so this gentleman, this friend, had a picture that showed two men standing next to a really impressive termite mound. <laughs> Like, it's astonishingly large. Um, Both of the men had sunglasses on. The age and condition of the photo made a positive ID on their images almost impossible. However, in 2020, I don't know if it's because we had free time during COVID or the shutdown (laughs) or what, but they took facial recognition software and they used it on the photo. And according to this recognition software, the men in the picture were, in fact, brothers John and Clarence Anglin. Isn't that crazy? Fuck yeah, in Brazil with a giant termite mound for no reason. (laughs) So my other question is, what other reason would this friend have to have this photo of two random men next to a termite mound? Especially because, you know, at the time, in the 60s, 70s, nobody would be able to make, like, any kind of... discernible distinction between it because it looks like two furry guys with yeah. glasses on and i'm like oh I like would... somebody literally was like shaking as they, they look nothing the like their mug shots either so again who knows i mean and they were down in brazil Beards I don't go know. a long way to cover things up it really does they it makes you look like a whole mm-hmm. different person Absolutely. i look at pictures from like when mark and i first got together pre-beard looks weird yeah. i don't like it where's your He's supposed to be scruffy. Right. (laughs) Um, So this friend had an alternative theory for their escape. Which I love. This makes a lot of fucking sense. I was was like, like, I read it and I was like, oh my God. So I don't know where you stand on what you think happened. I wholeheartedly believe that this is what happened. I think the men at least got to mainland USA. Well, I think, in my opinion, if they put that much time and effort into it, they'd be like, we're going to find a better way than paddling with right. plywood and screws. Right. So I think this is what actually happened. Absolutely. So what At this, least I hope. I, I just slightly think, hope. Like, this whole thing is so intriguing. So this friend said that they allegedly used the raft to not paddle across the bay, but to paddle around the perimeter of the island to the boat dock. 
Which makes sense because there was a, a big sense. ass boat dock with a big ass ferry. Yep. And at the dock, they attached an electrical cord to the rudder of the prison ferry and they just waited for it to leave at its scheduled departure, which, which was around midnight, midnight I, I think. think. Mm-hmm. Every, every night it left at midnight. Yeah. And every morning it came back at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m., whatever and it was. Wouldn't you know that there was an electrical cord reported missing from the jail? From the dock on that specific evening. So allegedly, hmm. the ferry unknowingly towed them to land and therefore their freedom. That would be freaking awesome. I just feel like that makes the most sense. Like, oh, I just sure. feel like everything we've learned about these men and everything that they've done, like, their I don't know, attention just, to detail just seems to great for them to be like, let's just paddle. <laughs> maybe it's the drama queen in me also that's like, there's no way. Like, that's just not like a good enough. <laughs> That's not a good enough answer. Well, and I'm curious if they did try and paddle and figured out that three people go sort of wonky. Yeah. You have to have even with a... Right. It's like a canoe. Which was their original intention, Mm -hmm. had everything gone to plan. So I think maybe either they readjusted Mm -hmm. or this was the initial plan. Either way. I'm loving it. It totally makes sense. So here we have, just to sort of wrap it up a smidgy bit, just some miscellaneous reasons why the men might actually have survived and or weird theories that surround the escape. I just Mm -hmm. thought these were interesting. They were. Let's add this shit in. Yeah. So the day after the escape, a lawyer in San Francisco received a call from a man claiming to be John Anglin. This man wanted to arrange a meeting with the U.S. Marshal's office, but... The lawyer said, no, thank you. He refused. (laughs) The caller, perhaps John, hung up and never called back. There was no message, no pass go, no nothing. A San Francisco police officer claimed to have seen an illegal boat passing under the Golden Gate Bridge around 1 a.m. on June 12th, but this was dismissed by other authorities. Mm, Strange. It was still documented, but it was dismissed. Mm -hmm. Because they were like, nah. I just, you know... That couldn't be them. Normally, I'm on board for what the FBI is doing and saying and things when it comes to this kind of stuff, but, like, I feel like somebody was just not having it with this case. So if the ferry towed them in, like we may or may not believe, they could have just coasted into land. Yeah. All they would have had to do was hold on for dear life. If they were being towed, they didn't need the raft to do much more but keep them on top of the water. Right, like when you're being pulled behind a boat for fun. This was just for their lives. Exactly. Um, In 1993, a former Alcatraz inmate comes forward, and he claims that he had actually been part of the escape. He just never came forward before this point. (laughs) Um, He claimed that Clarence's girlfriend had agreed to meet the men at the shore and then drive drive them all to Mexico. He also claimed his lack of swimming ability was the reason he didn't actually join in with the escape plan itself. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Which is kind of hilarious. Especially, <clears throat> don't forget, the England brothers were superior swimmers at swimming. Mm-hmm. Um, it should also be noted with a big fat asterisk here that uh, <laughs> this man was paid for his interview during which this information was given. And yeah. I believe it was one of the TV tabloids. So, so take it with a grain of salt. Take that how you will. This is super interesting, though, because Mythbusters tested the possibility of success regarding the raft. Which I was like, oh, okay. I know. I, I don't watch Mythbusters I don't really on the regular, either. but I would seek this one out specifically it, because it's intriguing. If it, like, was on and I happened to catch it before I started just streaming everything, like, and there was nothing else on, I sure. like the ones where they blow stuff up. Yeah. I enjoy those. But I would also watch this one. 
They constructed a raft in similar fashion as the escapees did, and they put it in the water. And after their test, they concluded that it was, in fact, possible to make it work. So, I mean... Again, take out the grain of salt, because you can't exactly reproduce everything from the 60s. (laughs) Right, absolutely. Nor was anybody... Nobody was there. We don't really know what happened. But, I mean, I do think it's really interesting that they took the time to... Rec- like to replicate the raft oh, for sure. and all that kind of stuff. I would stuff. love to see it stitched by hand. I wonder if we can track it down. We can. We can do We're it. Find it. Um, so according to a 2011 documentary titled Vanished from Alcatraz, there was a raft along with footprints leading away from it that was discovered on Angel Island, which I guess was the initial target. This was all found June 12, 1962. That same day, a 1955 blue Chevy was reported missing in Marin County, California. And on June 13th, a motorist reported to the California Highway Patrol that he was forced off the road by three men in a blue Chevy. Mm. What? Three men in a blue Chevy? Interesting. Scandalous. There was a man who claimed to be the cousin to one Frank Morris Mm. and said that he delivered bribe money to some of the guards at Alcatraz, which honestly adds another layer to this that I could see being true. Hence the accordion and the free movement. Hence the accordion Mm -hmm. and the no paying attention to these dudes just being gone. Right. Like, again, there is a significant time difference, but from what I understand, there's not a lot of, like, time where there isn't somebody... In the room with you, right. like if you're in like a general population situation, right. I don't know. If you have other information, please share. Please let us know what prisons were like. I'm also <laughs> fascinated by the prison system in itself. I used to watch Locked Up all the time. Like I just anything that has its own hierarchy and own like code of conduct right. within society, like it's just so utterly fascinating to me. Who knows why? So this man also claimed to have met up with this cousin of his, Frank Morris, in a Sandy in San Diego post the escape. And actually the daughter of this guy claimed to remember meeting Frank Morris. She was like, Oh, I don't remember him exactly, but I remember his face and I knew it was my dad's friend Frank. And I was like, Oh interesting. She was like nine at the time. Yeah. So old enough to know. Old enough to be able to remember those kinds yeah, of details right? for sure, for sure. Um, and this brings us to, I think, the most interesting part of all of this. In 2013, which was not that long ago. No. Not even 10 years ago. Well, almost. Close enough. (laughs) San Francisco police received a letter allegedly written by John Anglin himself. The letter was written to negotiate a surrender in exchange for cancer treatment. And it claimed that Morris had died in 2008 and was buried in Alexandria, Virginia, under an alias. I believe Clarence had also passed away, and it was included in the letter, and it was years previous. Mm-hmm. Um, the FBI has confirmed that this letter does exist, but whether or not it is authentic has never been figured out. Yeah. So it's, the results are inconclusive. Inconclusive. Kind of made me sad when I read that. I, I was know. like, oh, man, cancer. We lived his whole life. Uh, he mm. actually didn't kill anybody, so that gives me some, like, yeah. okay, great. The England brothers life. didn't <laughs> seem like super terrible people in the Com- comparatively. Yeah. <laughs> My other thought process was the man that was left behind 
Mm. Did he tell us the truth right. about what the plot was? Or did he lie? Like, was the plot to sail behind the ferry the whole time? Yeah. And he just chose to be like, oh, they were going to row across the bay. Yeah. Or just, or just like, didn't even mention that part at all. Because mm-hmm. I do think it's interesting that he was like, oh, no, they're going to go to Mexico. Like, that's just always... For sure. Like, of course, like, of course that's where... So, if you were in San Diego, yeah, go to Mexico. Yeah. If you're in San Francisco, you're at the fucking top of the state. Right. You're practically in the next state. Like, right. At that point, Canada go would to be Canada. a mm-hmm. better, quicker option, I the would feel. The length of California. I rode in a car once with my mother, I love you very much, and my sister <laughs> from San Francisco to L.A. Oh. It's like mad? nine hours. Oh. I'd rather gouge my eyes out. Mark and I drove with... My sister, my younger sister, to Florida once, but she slept the whole way, so it was basically just Also, no, just I've us. done that once, and I was like, never again. It wasn't terrible. Put me on a plane. Let me have a beer. I'll see you in five hours. Okay, great. If we would have had the opportunity to, like, make stops and, like, just kind of hang out, like, I like road trips. I like the idea of, like, backpacking around my the sister country, is like that. but... She I also, hates flying. She would I'm rather just, chew an arm off. I'm so claustrophobic. The thought of being trapped oh. in a metal thing like that. Just, You're more likely to die in a car I know. crash than a plane it's crash. Not about I the, just flip my brain off and go to sleep. But I can not, sleep anywhere. It's so. not about the, the crashing or any of that. It's literally just being stuck in an, like a place that I can't control. Oh. Like, you, like it's the claustrophobic aspect of it. Like knowing that I'm just stuck in the air. I have, like, I'm just at the mercy of everybody so else around when me. the podcast gets famous and we start traveling Europe, we're taking a boat is what yes. you're saying? Yes, <laughs> we're taking a boat. Well, so our friend Paige is uh, boat likely... Trip, boat Trip. Moving to Australia. In, oh, hell yeah, uh, we're going there. Yeah. The bugs are scary as fuck, though. Right, but we're, we're definitely going to go visit. And I was telling her how Mark and I decided that we'd be terrible flying companions because I'm anxious and he gets overwhelmed easily. And we're just, that's just, unless we're going with you, which is likely, but still. We were talking about that, and I was like, we're going to have to take a boat to visit Paige, because there's no way I'm getting on a, like, 16-hour plane ride or whatever the fuck it is. It's, like, 14 hours. Mm, no, thanks. Asia's worse. It's literally, we're here, and it's, like, All here, around, but yeah. you have to fly that way. Right. <sighs> I managed to survive for my flights down to Jacksonville. It was an hour and 15 minutes and 45 minutes. That was fine. I did have, like, my first experience, like, running through the terminal because I had 45 minutes between flights, and they were, of course, like, at opposite ends of the airport. Don't ever do layovers like that. I didn't have a choice. My aunt paid for the ticket for us, so she organized everything, so I didn't... I don't... When we went on our cruise, I flew on JetBlue. I love your prices. I hate every other part of that. I (laughs) I really was praying to God to deliver mm. me from the JetBlue flight on the way oh, home. No. I cried when I touched down in Buffalo. You know, I've I never cried when I got me. off a plane before, but I was like, oh. I remember you telling me It's that. fine. Nine hours to Spain and home, it's cool beans. I don't really care, but from Cle- or from Fort Lauderdale to Buffalo, I was like, dear God, get me home. If we have to fly somewhere along, then we're just upgrading our tickets to give me space. Oh, that's the well, moral of that honestly, story. those planes are like big flying cities. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like... You don't even notice it. You really don't. Or Xanax for everybody. We'll all just have I was going to say, I'll just dope myself up. We'll call it a day. We're getting to Australia one way or another, Paige. Don't you worry. (laughs) So, there we have it. 
you guys, the ins and outs of Alcatraz Island, something that's always been really interesting to me. It is still, if you are in the San Francisco area or if you have a trip planned, you can still take the ferry out to Alcatraz, do the tour, the whole nine yards. We're totally going to go. I've seen it from afar. We're going to go. Nobody else ever wanted to go on to Alcatraz with me. So oh, we're going. You can see, as far as I know, you can see. They still see. have one of the cells set up the way it looked to the day of the prison break. Or the it, day it was discovered. Isn't it Al Capone? And then isn't Al Capone's His cell still available there. Well, he lives like a king there. Right. So mm -hmm, there's that. <laughs> But yeah, I, I would love to do it sometime. If you guys have ever been there, please let us know what it's yeah, like. Yeah, share your story. We'd love to hear some feedback. Is it about haunted? Why, I Tell know. me what I need to do. Do they expect. do ghost walks? Mm, I don't know. I would probably go during the day, but still. <laughs> Stuff like that's scary. We uh, are... We were planning a trip to Philly. Unfortunately, things didn't work out, but I'd still like to go someday. And we were talking about going to Eastern State Penitentiary, Ooh. and Suze was, like, not having mm -hmm. it. It's It kind of made me laugh, because I'm the Because I believe that's actually haunted, yeah. and I don't <laughs> vibe with those spirits, because they're tortured. They're terrified. <laughs> yeah. Just like Alcatraz, I would assume it's all very yeah. sad people. We'll go during the day, though. Mm -hmm. It's safer. Allegedly. Because they do have, supposedly, they're working on growing up all of the plants, the natural plants that occur there, they're working on in raising Alcatraz? them on Alcatraz oh, Island. Okay. They're working on the flora and the fauna and the little animals that, like, live there and stuff. They're trying to encourage all that to sort of grow back ah. up. To I, I personally feel like um, stuff like that helps an island like that. Yeah, I And can it see was that. probably all knocked down to be a desolate prison, so I'm going to assume they're trying to grow it back up to preserve the island that makes sense help with the salt and the spray and the etc cetera, etc cetera. rocks interesting huh so anyways guys thank you so much for hanging out with us and just giving us a listen today we appreciate your time and we appreciate you so very much make sure that you follow us on social media at crime and spirits pod for instagram and facebook we've got twitter you'll be looking at for at crime spirits pod we're really sort of growing on Twitter. We now have Dragula drag queens uh, yeah. liking Don't our even. stuff. So. We're basically famous now. <laughs> she told me that today, and I may have squealed. Uh, like, I love Twitter. I'm super excited Twitter about makes that. no sense to me. The algorithms, it's all <laughs> nonsense. But I'll figure it out. <laughs> I don't know how to use it. So if you guys are interested in following me personally, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Brie, B-R-E-E, -E, underscore, not the cheese. And I am Suze. Not Susan. Because we've got major complexes. We do. Our people fuck our names up so, so much. hard. Were you like the cheese? No. I hate Susan, it. And literally all of my girlfriends at work have been like, her name is Suzanne. You mean Suzanne? 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 And they're like, oh, Susan. I'm like, okay. I give up. <laughs> so that's where we're at with that. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing that we're going to do is ask you guys to pretty, pretty, pretty please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred streaming platform allows. It really helps us out. And also, you guys, we officially earned a rating on we Spotify did. this week. Because, you know, with mo like with most things now, you have to have X amount of reviews will before it will even show up. So yeah. we've reached the threshold. We now have an actual review. We are officially rated. We are 4.6 stars. I mean, I will take that. I That's love it. great. We have not even been working on this. Well, we haven't been actively doing this for a year yet. Yeah. I would like to think we're kind of crushing it. We're doing great. We're also over 30 episodes. Yes. So it's been a big week of milestones. It really has been. It's been awesome. And honestly, the best part was just seeing that you guys 
like what we're doing. You think we're pretty. You want to listen. So that being said, we love you. And we're going to go record a bonus episode for you guys. And we'll see you next time. Love you. Bye. Bye.